So tonight's entertainment is on working with thoughts and emotions. One of the great misfortunes of being a human being is how we suffer being at the mercy of our minds, incessant thoughts, and turbulent emotions, paralyzing fears and obsessive desires, this chaotic turbulence of mind. And one of the great blessings of being a human is having a way to work with these minds so we can be freed from this suffering and experience spaciousness and ease in this world. So there's two major ways that practice can heal our minds. And this is working with thoughts and emotions. You may have noticed the tendency of mind to create these whole worlds and universes through thought that we make quite elaborate and then we inhabit and they become very real to us. So we live in a virtual reality world, a dream world of our thoughts. And then we believe that they're real. And this is one major way that we suffer. There's a story of a monk who lived in a cave. And he painted this tiger on the wall. And he painted this tiger so well and in such intricate detail that then he thought there was a tiger there. And he became afraid. That's a little bit what we do with our minds. <laughs> we, pe we paint these stories in such intricate detail, and then um, we believe that they're real and we suffer. So there has to be a better way. <laughs> there has to be a better way to work with thoughts and emotions. And that's what I'd like to talk about tonight. I'd like to start with thoughts first. And I'd like to start with reading a quote from Bhante Gunaratma from the book Mindfulness in Plain English. He says, somewhere in this process, you will come face to face with the sudden and shocking realization that you are completely crazy. <laughs> Your mind is a shrieking, gibbering madhouse on wheels, barreling pell-mell down the hill, utterly out of control and hopeless. No problem. <laughs> you are not crazier than you were yesterday. It has always been this way, you just never noticed. You are also no crazier than anybody else around you. The real difference is that you have confronted the situation they have not. So they still feel relatively comfortable. That does not mean that they're better off. Ignorance may be bliss, but it does not lead to liberation. So don't let this realization unsettle you. It is a milestone, actually, a, a sign of real progress. The very fact that you have looked at the problem straight in the eye means that you are on your way up and out of it. Somewhat encouraging. <laughs> but that's what happens with practice. That's really um, considered the first major insight that most people have. And you can have it. I had it in my first five minutes after I gave up. Well, before I gave up, then I gave up. <laughs> this realization that our minds are really out of control. So we live in this world of um, constructed thought, very busy world of constructed thought, yet we know so little about it. And one of the, the, the areas that we look in and practice then is we look at our thoughts so that we can start learning about thought. What is thought? How does it work? And how do we get trapped in it and suffer so much? Some people think that we meditate to get rid of thoughts, that thought itself is the problem. But actually, that's not true. Thought isn't a problem. It's actually quite useful. At times, we need it to, to um, manage this world. And besides, um, if you've ever tried to get rid of thought, you probably learn that it's not very easy to do. Um, if you meditate in a um, restricted environment with very little um, distraction and lots of silence over an extended period of time, you might be able to get 
your mind in such a state that you have very little thought. But most of us <laughs> aren't going to do that. <laughs> most of us, um, and besides, once you start talking and getting engaged again, the mind starts um, getting thought in it again. So it's not very realistic to think we're going to get rid of thought. But it is realistic to think that we can understand thought and we can understand how to disentangle ourselves from the knots that we get into with thought. So the best way to understand the nature of thought is to observe it. Look at it directly. And the, the best moment to do that is the moment that I mentioned in the instructions when you become awake, when you go, oh, thinking. <laughs> um, it's really interesting at that moment to turn our attention not to the content of thought, but the thought itself. What happens to the thought? Um, I don't know if some of you tried that experiment, but often just the very noticing that you're thinking will dissolve a thought. There it goes, you know? And it's so interesting because when we're not aware of thought, when we're lost in it, it's extremely powerful. You know, we believe it. We're really, you know, it's, it creates our whole universe. And yet when we turn our attention to thought, it's very ephemeral. It's just, just kind of little whispers. Now, I know that some thoughts don't do that. The ones that are kind of emotionally loaded, they don't go anywhere when you turn your attention to them. Okay, so it's not always that way. Um, and we'll get to those, uh, those uh, working with those kind of thoughts. But really, um, thought is, is such, it's such a koan because it can be so powerful and strong, and it also can be just a wisp, just a little cloud just floating through the sky. What usually happens with thoughts is we get one thought, and then we get a whole proliferation of thoughts afterwards. And there's a Pali word for this. It's called papancha, which I really, I like that word, papancha. It kind of fits. And so it's, it's kind of like the snowball going down the hill. You know, it starts out small, and as it goes down the hill, it gets more and more snow, and you get this huge thing going on. Um, you know, such uh, so something can happen like, you know, you can smell coffee and you think, oh, I really want some coffee right now. God, did I buy any more coffee beans? And, you know, I bet I didn't. Oh, God, if I can have my cup of coffee tomorrow morning, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm not going to be able to wake up, you know. And it's just, and the mind just goes, I wonder, you know, maybe I should stop at Bread and Circus on my way home. And, and you know, it's just, you know how it goes. <laughs> And then you can get into coffee cake, and, <laughs> and then you can get into the last birthday cake that, that you made. And, and so the mind just has this incredible creative quality, which is actually quite magnificent in itself. Except the problem is when we're not aware of it. And when we're not aware of it, we get really lost in it. Um, one of my favorite quotes these days is by Mark Twain. He says, I've experienced many disasters in my life most of which never happened. That <laughs> kind of sums it up, you know? We create these disasters in our mind and then most of them don't happen. When we're on retreat, uh, this becomes um, glaringly um, obvious, even more so than in our daily lives, because in our daily lives we're kind of running around, we're not paying much attention. But we can really notice on retreat, and especially extended retreats, Especially like right now in the three-month course, they're four weeks in. And the slightest thing can just set people off on this whole avalanche of, um, of thought. And uh, they can get really tangled up. I remember one time when I was on an, an extended retreat and I saw a note on the board that looked like my old boyfriend had written to a woman. I thought it was his handwriting. And I went into this whole avalanche of thoughts about whether he had something going with this woman and um, you know I felt lonely um, upset rejected many things like that I just went way overboard with my thoughts and then the funny thing is I found out after the retreat that he um, had never even written a note So luckily we have our friend mindfulness, and mindfulness can help break these patterns. What's also incredible is, you know, we can be really lost in our thoughts, and yet one moment of mindfulness and we're free. You know, one moment of, oh, that's just thinking. And, and in that moment we're free from the grip 
of, um, of uh, these stories that we've created. It, and, and we shouldn't underestimate the power of that. You know, it's very simple, um, and yet it's very powerful. A lot of people actually don't, you know, who don't practice meditation don't even really realize that, that, that we can turn our attention to thinking and we can free ourselves from the knots that we have. Every time you return your mind, your, your attention to the breath, when you're meditating, you're actually strengthening that ability to um, disentangle from thought. So every time you think that you're coming back to the breath a lot and you're wasting your time here because you're coming back to the breath so often and you can't stay with whatever, you're actually not wasting your time. You're strengthening your ability to get yourself out of mind, um, mind knots, thought knots, tang- entanglement. It's like a muscle. As you strengthen it, it, it works better. So it's um, very, very useful. What happens over time is we find as we're able to disentangle from our thoughts and, and get some um, dexterity working with them, we, st- we start to find that we get less identified with our thoughts. This is something we talk about in Buddhism a lot, um, identifying with our experience. And basically what we mean by identifying with our experience is that something, some ex- something happens, some experience happens, and we kind of glom onto it and say, ooh, this is me, this is mine, and we get um, kind of glued onto it. Um, so a thought story will come along, and, um, and, and it gets very sticky, and we get very glued, and, and it's very me. That's called identifying. As time goes on, we start to actually kind of let thoughts come and let thoughts go on their own, and they don't have that gluey kind of quality as much anymore. That's because there's less identification. There's less um, clinging to our thoughts. This is very um, freeing this ability to disidentify or or not identify with our thoughts. And we start to see at a certain point that thoughts are actually just triggered by conditions. Uh, I remember the first time I saw this so clearly, and it's just a little moment, but I was on retreat, and I noticed that I felt cold, and then I noticed um, that I wanted to be warm, then I noticed that the thought came, I should put on my sweater, and then I noticed that I... um, had the intention to reach for my sweater, and then I reached for my sweater. And I just actually, like, watched this whole progress, process happen. It was like, where was Rebecca? You know, there was no Rebecca there. It was just that conditions caused things to happen. And that's how thoughts work, too. They're just conditioned by some circumstance happens, thoughts come along. And we, we learn in that way that they're not me, they're, they're not mine. They're just con- phenomena happening and disappearing. It's very liberating. Another way that mindfulness of thought heals is that it saves us from unskillful actions. We were talking about that a little earlier today, that actually if we can um, be mindful of our thoughts, we're less likely to act out in ways that we later regret. It's when we're lost in these thought stories, like, for example, if we're mad at somebody and you get lost in the loss, or I can't believe he did that. Well, then, you know, that was just not fair, and I'm going to have to teach him a lesson. And then, you know, it, it, if we identify with that and really believe it and get lost in it, then we do things that, you know, we say something or do something that we later regret. And if we can be aware of that, oh, it's just, that's just the mind story I have going and kind of hold our horses, um, we can save ourselves a lot of suffering. So that's another way that mindfulness deals with thoughts. Now, how do we apply this mindfulness of thought? When we first start meditating, we often take out the hammer, and a thought comes along, and we're like, no. <laughs> you know, we're like, hammer that down. <laughs> um, we actually don't have to be that afraid of our thoughts. Um, with time, we can learn that we, that, we can, that we can apply a little bit more gentle mindfulness, and that we just, all we really have to do is... Um, uh, just notice, notice thought. That's fine. The very noticing starts loosening that, that identification and getting lost in the story. It's, you know, we, it, 
we don't smash it down with a hammer, and then we also don't get lost in it. It's the middle way. The Buddha talked a lot about the middle way of just bringing awareness, noticing that we're thinking. And then, like I said, in the instruction, basically, when we're meditating, we return to the anchor so that we don't get further lost in the story. Then there's also times when, no matter what we do, the mind doesn't want to calm down. Any of you experience that? <laughs> and um, then it, it, I, it, we can just be okay with the restless and thinking mind. There's a way that we can um, not have it bother us so much. When I first started meditating, I really got bothered when my mind would think a lot. I still have sitting sometimes where my mind's quite busy, but the big difference is it doesn't bother me anymore. <laughs> you know, it's just, okay, thinking mind, you know, there it goes. And um, there's a way we can make space for that, too, that we don't, to have freedom, we don't have to get rid of thought or um, somehow make it less. We just have to have spaciousness around thought, awareness and spaciousness. It's really only our aversion to the restless mind that causes the problem. Otherwise, it's okay. It's just restlessness. So the other thing um, that I, rec- I recommend with thoughts, one thing I talked about was you know labeling more specific thoughts. We can do that. Um, you know, planning, judging. Judging is a big one. I don't know how many of you noticed that, but oh, we love to judge. Um, uh, remembering, rehearsing. A lot of times we'll kind of rehearse this little story in our minds about everything that's happening so we can tell that we're going to tell everybody when we get home. That's a real common one. Okay, now I'm doing this and then I'm doing that. And, um, so we can use these specific labels to help us increase our mindfulness of these thought patterns. And we can even have, you know, kind of fun with it. We might have a, a this one always made me, me laugh. My mother said that, my mom meditates a lot, and um, she said that on one of her retreats, she became very aware that, like, all her thoughts were about how kind of great she was and, and how she did this or that. And so she started calling it the Mary Jo Show. Her name's Mary Jo. So you say, oh, there's the Mary Jo Show. You know, you can have some fun with your thoughts, you know, just ways to kind of loosen the, 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 the seriousness of it, which is often, often when we're real serious about our thoughts, it's because we are very identified. So um, making up... Um, or sometimes people number them. They have like, they, just for fun, you say, okay, you know, the top five. The top five thoughts, and okay, oh, there's number one again. You know, you can, you can really get creative and have some fun. <laughs> Nobody said we had to be serious about this. Another thing that um, is important with thoughts especially when you find the obsessive thoughts that come back a lot over and over again, often they're fed by an emotion, um, that there's some emotion fueling this kind of whole thought stream. And so then one way you can work with the thoughts is you go directly to working with the emotion, which I'm going to get to in a couple of minutes. Sometimes the, that being directly with the emotion will kind of free the, the obsessive thought pattern going on. Sometimes it won't, but um, it, it's one way to work with it. So the idea with all of these um, suggestions about working with thought is not that somehow we're going to free ourselves from thought or get rid of thought or um, make thought go away, but that actually we learn um, freedom and spaciousness in how we relate to thoughts when they come up. And so we bring in this mindfulness, we bring in this lightness, we bring in this non-identification, and then thinking is not a problem. It's just clouds that go through the sky. Sometimes, however, our thoughts are fueled by emotions, and they don't feel like clouds going through the sky. They feel like thunderstorms that'll never leave, or uh, tornadoes, or hurricanes. (laughs) So let's turn a little bit to working with them. with emotions. For many people, this is one of the most challenging parts of um, being human, is dealing with difficult emotions. Dealing with wanting, craving, greed, envy, fear, anger, sadness, annoyance, rage, hatred, all of what we call the afflictive emotions. 
And all of these are emotions are based in um, greed and aversion, or wanting and not wanting, what the Buddha called the roots of our um, suffering, that and ignorance. And it's not to forget that life certainly has its share of blissful and beautiful emotions, happiness, joy, love, compassion, bliss, equanimity. These aren't so obviously problematic. They are problematic if we cling to them. You know, usually the more pleasant emotions, we want to cling to them and make them stay. And, um, and we find a, a kind of a subtle feeling of um, suffering if we, if we pay attention when we're um, experiencing these pleasant emotions. We get very identified with them, want them to stay, and there is a subtle level of anxiety. You know, I want this to stay. For most of us, that um, when we think of working with emotions, that's not our immediate concern. <laughs> our, our, our usual concern is more with um, uh, the more difficult emotions based in aversion, um, fear, anger, anxiety. Those are the ones that I th- hear people working with mostly. So we're going to concentrate on that tonight. Let's take a minute to think, what do we usually do when emotions come up for us? Um, We usually do one of two things. We usually drown in them or avoid them. So uh, let's look at the consequences of each of those two actions. First of all, drowning in emotions. So what happens is we'll get really lost in the story. Emotions are a combination of bodily sensations and thoughts. And so when we drown in the emotion, we just get really wrapped up in the story and, um, and, you know, swallow it hook, line, and sinker. <laughs> Often then we will actually act things out based on that anger or fear. And we lose perspective when we do that. We, can't, we no longer see the world clearly. We see it through the filter of the emotion. And, um, and that's, a, uh, that's a whole different thing than clarity. <laughs> So the other extreme is that we often try to avoid emotions. Um, if, if we feel an emotion that we don't um, particularly like, we'll try to push it away, pretend it's not there, swallow it, put it somewhere else in our body. Anything not to feel them. And so, so we all have our, our particular emotions that we hate and don't want to feel. Um, a lot of people, it's anger or fear. Those are very common. And, you know, and, and it works temporarily to a certain extent to kind of avoid emotions. But the problem is, um, at, at with that as a strategy, is that we never find peace because we're always on the lookout for those emotions. There's a certain restless quality of, of um, is it going to come now? <laughs> you know, and always um, having to, to be on the lookout. It's also true that if we use avoiding emotions as a strategy, that we never learn to make peace with them, and we never learn to work with them skillfully. Before I started meditating, my my major um, way of working with emotions was to avoid them. I repressed a lot of emotions, and consequently, I was quite uptight because I used a lot of my mental energy to make sure that the emotions, I didn't know this, you know, it's all subconscious, to make sure that all the emotions that I wasn't ready to deal with couldn't get into my, um, into, into my sphere of influence. <laughs> After I meditated, I, I went through a period where actually I, I had a lot of emotional material come up and I had to deal with it. And, um, you know, at times it was hard, but it was actually really good because it was, it meant that I was making peace with emotions and then I didn't have to have that kind of protective, uptight um, shell around me in order to keep them away. I remember um, that first long retreat that I was telling you about. I think I was, well actually I did a three week retreat and then I did a five month retreat. And about 10 days into this five month retreat, I um, had an interview with Joseph, Joseph Goldstein, and um, I was just feeling all these emotions. So I go into him, and I'm like, 
and I'm feeling anger and sadness and loneliness and fear and and um, you know I just went I had a list of about 15 emotions that I was feeling and I was quite distraught about this and so you know I go on my whole long thing and then I stop and he looks at me and goes what's the problem <laughs> <laughs> and it was it was this transformative moment in my life because I realized I, I looked at him and I said there's not a problem? <laughs> and he said, no. <laughs> you know? And I had somehow, uh, I think I'd had this idea that um, it was a problem to feel all these things. And he was like, you know, just go for a walk, chill for a while, and it's okay. It's such a little thing, but, you know, I never forgot that moment. And we can learn that from meditation. We can learn that emotions aren't a problem. It's okay. We just learn how to work with them the same as we learn how to work with thoughts. So we're not trying to get rid of emotions anymore than we're trying to get rid of the thoughts. Because again, it's pretty difficult. And um, it's, uh, it's not an answer that leads to peace. You know, we all know people who, who, who take the path of trying to get rid of emotions as, and they're, I'm not going to feel any anger. I don't feel anger. And often, these are the people where it, it ekes out, right? Because we're, we are humans. We are emotional creatures. Mm -hmm. So the best thing is not to try to get rid of emotions, but actually to learn how to work with them. So the way we work with emotions is the same as the way we work with thoughts, is we turn our attention to the emotion and investigate. We're not so interested in the story. We're interested in what is an emotion and how did I get hooked or how do I get hooked in emotions. And so we turn to it and at first um, it's often very useful just to actually recognize what emotion we're feeling. So we label it. Oh, sadness, anger, bliss, whatever it is. We, 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 we recognize it and then we um, investigate. How does it feel in the body? That's the best way I know of investigating emotion is to turn to the body and see what corresponding sensations you can find in the body. Usually you can find something, not always. But, you know, anger might be clenching here. Sadness might be a tickling nose and, and you know, watery eyes. Fear might be, you know, butterflies all around the abdomen. Um, Anxiety might be, you know, burning across the shoulders. So it's turning our attention to see where we feel the um, emotion in the body. And then also just turning to see the quality of it in the mind. And this is the parts that's tricky because you can easily get lost in the stories, right? But, you know, is there a feeling of contraction in the mind or expansion? Just what's the flavor of the emotion in the mind? We can also notice the kinds of thoughts that come with the emotion. For example, anger, self-righteous thoughts will often come, you know. So we can notice what kinds of thoughts, but, we, but well, when we first start working with emotion, we are going to get sucked into the storyline again, you know, and, and, and we kind of get sucked and we come out and we get sucked in and we come out. But um, it, it's, it's just seeing the kinds of thoughts rather than this specific story. We're not real interested in the story in meditation. In psychotherapy we might be, but in meditation we, we want to understand what an emotion is. So what we actually do is, is we get real intimate with these emotions. It's like, hello, you know, how are you? What are you? It's really um, not the way we're usually <laughs> conditioned to work with emotions, but it is a way that leads to so we become interested in all of our emotional experience this takes courage it takes courage to meditate I don't know if you guys have figured that out yet um, it takes a lot of courage to sit down and be willing to experience whatever will come because you don't know what it's going to be you know, it, most people in this country would not be willing to do what you just did today, to sit down and look at their minds. Most people go, oh, not me. <laughs> You've got to be kidding. <laughs> you know, even people you probably know um, have responded that way. <laughs> and it's because um, <laughs> people have an intuitive sense, I think, that it will be difficult. 
So it does take courage, and you can congratulate yourself on having that courage to do it. When we first start working with some of these difficult emotions, let's be honest with ourselves. We want them to go away. You know, I'm talking about acceptance and making friends with emotions. Well, that isn't where we usually start. And um, the, the important thing with meditation is not to pretend that anything is happening that's not happening, but actually to be with our real experience. So anger comes along and we go, oh, go away. So we be with the, go away. Okay, there's a version there. We just start wherever we are. It's, it's actually um, nice and simple. Just start with being aware of how we relate to our emotions. And it's so true that we don't have to do anything to them in order for us to um, find freedom. It's awareness heals, it really does. Just being aware of these emotions um, transforms us, transforms them. So it's an attitude of surrender to our emotions that I'm talking about. Not surrender in getting lost, but surrender in, um, in, in, in accepting our experience as it shows itself. It's about knowing, um, knowing ourselves. One meditation teacher calls um, meditation insult after insult. And uh, <laughs> I kind of like that. <laughs> um, I once uh, said that if I was going to write a story about my meditation history, it would be called Fall from Perfection. Because when I first started meditating, I thought I was pretty close to perfect. <laughs> I thought I really had life, you know. I was, I was up there, I thought. And then I just learned over the years to be very realistic about who I am by seeing, you know, seeing my selfishness and, and my greed and, you know, all the fairly um, common human experiences that we all share. What a relief it was, too, to, to not have to be perfect anymore. It's a lot of work being perfect. So ultimately, we're trying to make friends with all of our experience, and emotions are a big part of that. It's really the only way to peace that I know, is, is accepting and making friends with all of our experience. I call it, sometimes call it bringing the pieces home. That's what it's felt like at certain um, times in my practice, that I'm kind of reclaiming um, parts of my human experience that I haven't been able to integrate before. So making friends with all of it, even if it's terror or depression or anxiety. And it leads to a sense of unity, this, this, uh, this, um, this bringing these pieces home. There's a story, a poem that I'd like to read by Rumi, which is um, kind of shows this attitude. It's called The Guest House by Rumi. Some of you know it. It's a gem. <laughs> this being human is a guest house. Every morning a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still, treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whatever comes, because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. So meet them at the door laughing. Treat each guest honorably. So can we treat our emotions like a guest? So I talk about um, making friends with emotions. And I explained a little bit what that means, you know, being with the emotion in the body, feeling the flavor of the emotion in the mind, perhaps knowing what, um, 
types of thoughts come with that emotion. And we can do this not just while we're sitting here meditating, but we can actually do this um, in our daily lives. You know, sometimes obviously it's not the right moment if you're in the middle of work and you get triggered and something's happening. You might not. You might actually have a moment to identify the emotion. Just even identifying it can be very useful, but you won't have more time to work with it. But for some of the, some of these other emotions, you know, we can actually just take a break in our day and just spend a few moments making friends with whatever is going on. I find it especially useful um, with kind of the 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 deep karmic knots that we have. All of us, um, almost all of us, have some emotion generally that really triggers us big time. For some people it's loneliness. They won't go anywhere near loneliness. For some people it's fear or terror. Nope, not going to do that one. (laughs) For some people it's anger or rage. And we all, most of us have um, some of these like deep-rooted emotions that have um, very uh, well-worn grooves in our mind. And I want to give a little example about how to work with those. Um, Fear has been my specialty, pretty much. Um, What I've had to work with a lot in in practice. Many years ago, um, a number of years ago, I used to fall in this fear place that I called the black hole. It was um, kind of a place where I would get, you know, mentally, emotionally, uh, which was very frightening and felt very alone, kind of spinning out in outer space. Nobody was going to save me. I'm just this real lonely and fearful place. And when I would get caught in it, I suffered greatly. I mean, it was really a very difficult, difficult mind state. And I used to, you know, with some regularity, fall into this. It wouldn't last like days or anything, you know, just hours maybe. Um, and for a long time in my life, I didn't know how to work with that. Actually, first, the first way I worked with it is that I totally repressed it and didn't even know that it happened. <laughs> and so my first um, way of, of bringing mindfulness to healing that emotion or that kind of groove that my mind would fall into was actually to start to feel it. So sometimes when we meditate, we actually become aware of, of um, karmic knots or, or um emotional material that we were previously, it can look worse for a while because we become aware of um, some things that we've previously hidden from us. So that's actually a stage in healing, which most of us don't recognize as a stage in healing. We think things are going backwards, but actually it's um, very positive. And so then, um, then I started to become aware of this emotion, and actually the most useful thing at that time was figure out how to get out of it. Um, and so I got pretty good at getting out of it when I would get stuck in it. And that's actually really important. I think it's an important part of working with emotions. Not just that we can access them, but we know how to get the hell out of there. <laughs> also, we don't always give credence to that. We're, we're in kind of our Western psychology framework. It's like we have to go into our emotions and, and be there and solve them. And stuff. But you can't, you can't do that if you don't know the way out. So... Um, it's very useful to know how to go into emotional states and, and how to back out of them. And that's something that we can also practice on the cushion. And I often recommend to people. So that was the next thing. And then the next thing that started happening is that, you know, I, the amount of time that way I would be lost in that mind state before I would be really aware that I was lost started shortening, you know. Instead of hours, you know, we started to get down to half hour. And, you know, sh- because when you get in one of your, these kind of mind frames, you actually don't realize how lost you are because you're so identified and so swept up. You, get, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, you personally. Yeah, totally personally, right? But I started noticing that the amount of time that I would be lost was less. And then I started to notice that I could actually go into that terror and and do it mindfully, actually be present, not flipped out, but actually present while it was happening. And so then um, I started noticing that it would start coming up, and I'd go, no, I don't really want to go there. Not in a kind of aversion place, but in a kind of, you know, (laughs) it's just not much fun. (laughs) But 
And so then, um, and now it, it rarely, rarely shows itself. And if it does, it just doesn't have any power. It's just like, oh, hello. <laughs> it's like, oh, hi there. <laughs> and, and it doesn't work anymore. So the healing, as you can see, is um, it takes time, first of all. Though at, at every point in working with these kind of mind frames, we can find more, more and more freedom. Um, with these deep grooves, we have to be so patient and love ourselves as we are really working on whatever it is. But with mindfulness, with applying mindfulness, eventually they, they lose their power over us. It's like you start putting holes into the stories, holes into the fabric of the fear or the fabric of the anger or the fabric of the loneliness. And then at some point it's just like you can see through it. And then it loses its power over you. That makes sense, and it's not by trying to get rid of it. it; doesn't work. It's by saying, "Okay, I'm willing to be with you, and I'm willing to explore you, and I'm even kind of begrudgingly willing to accept you." <laughs> what do you mean? Mm-hmm. I think, mm-hmm. yeah. Right. Embellishing something beyond what it really is. To me, that's a story in the mind. How it's a real story, it's happening. And it's, but they're not being traumatized now. Okay. Then um, it's really, a, it's, it's pretty similar though. It's about working with the thoughts and working with the emotions. So if the story comes up, you know, it's a memory. And, and we can know that it's a memory. And generally, it's the same process of needing to go to the emotions. So sometimes we have traumatic events, for example, from childhood that we don't feel healed from. And um, the best way to feel again is to go to the emotions and, um, and learn to be with them mindfully. Kind of in the way that I described. Those, those are the kinds of emotions that can really get us way in there and, and be very powerful. Yeah, the ones that have the deep roots are generally from childhood, and yes, they're very powerful. And so I'd say the first important thing is, as I, like I told the story about fear, is to know how to get out of them. <laughs> I'd say that's the first skill one should learn before one even learns how to be mindful in them. <laughs> you know, the first thing is um, how, to, how to get out of them. Sometimes that means knowing how to distract yourself, you know, knowing to call a friend if you get into that place, or... Um, uh, watch a movie or whatever, um, n knowing how to um, unhook from it. And, and that's different for different people what will work. For some people it might be a walk, you know. For some people it might be calling a friend. And I, and I also recommend when we work with these kind of emotions in um, meditation when they come up, often what we want to do is we want to go in and just take out the shovel and dig. <laughs> we want to go in and what's in there and I'm going to find it and I'm going to work through it and I'm going to be freed of it. That's a version. And so we have to start recognizing when we're trying to work with our emotional material with a version and, and, um, and when we find that we're doing that, it's usually best to back off. To, to, to like if you're um, feeling um, maybe deep grief here or something, and then you're like, well, what's under that? And, and, and you feel like you're working it, then it's time to go back to the breath or to go to um, something more spacious. Because that's actually my experience is that that's, um, uh, that's violating to oneself, to, 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 to go in and try to really work stuff. Um, and usually it creates within the psyche um, a feeling of um, not being safe. And so what's respectful of ourselves and of our unfolding process is to actually back off when we find that we're doing that. And 
over time we'll learn um, safety with ourselves. Our mind will learn to feel safe with our mind. <laughs> we'll, you know, it's kind of hard to talk about all this in, in Buddhist terms, but um, we will create the conditions of safety that will allow us to blossom and, to and for our, our practice to unfold. But we have to be so respectful of the timing of the mind. I found that in my practice for a number of years, I always felt like I should be working through things faster than I was, you know, and that. Um, because I came in with a fair amount of baggage from my childhood, and um, I really felt like I should, you know, get it all straightened out. And when I look back over the years and kind of the unfolding of my process, it was really good timing. <laughs> you know, the mind has an incredible ability to unfold at the right speed. I didn't think it was fast enough, but when I looked back, I understood. So I have a great respect for the mind, a great respect for our defense mechanisms, um, more power to them. We're, we are as healthy as we are because we have them. <laughs> and, you know, just um, working with acceptance of all of that, and then um, in its own time and way things um, unfold and transform. We have to trust the process. That's sometimes the hardest thing. Oh, it's 8.20. We better get moving here. <laughs> so um, what's really important with our investigation of thoughts and emotions is just bringing in an attitude of compassion and care, kind of counteracting that a tendency to have aversion, is actually to care about ourselves in this process of, of opening to maybe some of the more difficult aspects of being ourselves being human. Oh, there's so much more I could say, but I think we're going to wrap up here. So in some ways, it may sound like a kind of um, grim struggle, <laughs> but I think done with the, with the proper attitude, with an attitude of care, and with an attitude of gentleness and respect and metta, this, in, this investigation into the more difficult aspects of our experience is actually a joyful process. When we, when we don't need to be so afraid of ourselves, when we don't need to be so afraid of our thoughts and our emotions, um, we don't need to protect ourselves as much and we can be open more to life. And open more to life means also open to the joys of this world, to the beauty of existence, to um, the caress of the wind on our face, the smell of the autumn leaves, the taste of a cup of cocoa. <laughs> we get a much more connected um, feeling to life by working through these, um, working through, oh, that sounds way too project-oriented, um, by accepting <laughs> the more difficult aspects of ourselves. It's, um, it, life is really a package deal. Um, by being able to open more to the sorrow, we get more of the joy. It just works that way. You know, it, it, it's, we're open, open to life. So that means that um, we experience it more fully <coughs> in its broad range. We become more alive through this process, and that's a very deep kind of healing. I think I'll end with a quote by um, Norman Fisher, who's the abbot of the Zen, San Francisco Zen Center. We are human beings, and we must feel love and hate, elation and terrible grief. But underneath these things, we come to see, through our practice, there is a wider world beyond our concerns, a wild, radically sane world in which we can accept what occurs, aware of our feelings of grief or happiness, but not pushed around by them. This kind of acceptance does not mean not caring. In fact, with this real total acceptance comes a transformation in our ability to care. We care for everything very deeply not just victims, not just suffering people, but all people, 
and not just all people, but also animals and plants and also ourselves. Hmm, shall we sit for a couple minutes? You come to see that suffering is required and you no more want to avoid it than you want to avoid putting your next foot on the ground when you are walking. In the spiritual path, joy and suffering follow one another like two feet and you come to a point of not minding which foot is on the ground. You realize, on the contrary, that it is extremely uncomfortable hopping all the time on the joy foot. I forgot. <laughs> I got it out of the Sun magazine. <laughs> I can't remember. It was just a person nobody we would know. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.